You're listening to Welcome to Books and Boba, a book club and podcast featuring books by Asian and Asian American authors. My name is Marvin Yue. And I'm Ri Rayu. And on this episode, we have an author chat with Victoria Ying, the author and illustrator of the graphic novel Hungry Ghost, a young adult graphic novel that takes a look at eating disorders, family dynamics, and the journey to self love through the eyes of an Asian American girl. Yeah, so Victoria Ying is also an animator. She's worked on Tangled, Wreck-It Ralph, Frozen, Big Hero 6, and um, other books as well. She's the illustrator of her own series, City of Secrets and City of Illusion, through Penguin and Viking. And she's also the illustrator of the DC series, Diana, Princess of the Amazons. Yeah, we had a great conversation with her about her book, about how she started illustrating and becoming an animator and illustrator, um, and also her own history with eating disorders as well. Um, it's a really great conversation, lots of fun. And yeah, we hope you enjoy um, our conversation with Victoria. And we are here with Victoria Ying, the author of Hungry Ghost. Welcome to the podcast, Victoria. Thank you so much for having me. So before you were an author, you were an artist. You're still an artist. You <laughs> worked as a conceptual artist for Disney. Um, you've worked on Tangled, Wreck-It Ralph, Frozen, Big Hero 6, and Moana. Very big titles. Um, but let's go back to the beginning. How did you get into art? and storytelling. Yeah, so um I basically fell in love with anime and manga when I was you know a middle schooler like a lot of people in my generation. I uh, woke up at six o'clock in the morning to watch some Sailor Moon and I just loved drawing those characters. Um as you know I got a little older I started finding like manga series and my favorite author was Rumiko Takahashi who is a Japanese manga artist and she wrote a series called Ranma One Half and then she wrote Inuyasha, which was like more of an adventure story. And um, I just loved her book so much and I wanted to be just like her. So I really focused hard on drawing because that felt like the most um, difficult skill. And I didn't think too much about writing for a long time. I just really, really focused hard on like getting good at drawing and being able to like present my ideas in pictures as well as I could. Um, my eighth grade yearbook actually says that I want to like move to Japan and write comics uh, when I grow up. So um, yeah, in a way, like I'm doing that now, like I definitely managed to fulfill that childhood dream. Uh, but when I went to high school. I, you know, was really focused on art. And then I went to college, I went to art school, and I really wanted to do comics. I wanted to um, get into comics when I graduated. But uh, once I was in college, and uh, I went to Art Center College of Design, and they're known for their entertainment program. And basically, I got to college and people were like, uh, you know, there's like no money in comics. <laughs> <laughs> and I did not know that. And I was like, oh, actually, okay. So I pivoted and um, I, my new goal was to work in animation because it felt 
very similar to comics in the sense that I could do a lot of visual storytelling. I could still design characters. I could still, you know, tell stories with backgrounds the same way that I wanted to do in comics. Um, but I really had like lost the ability to write. I didn't think that I was a writer. I didn't think that I could write. My goals, even to just work in comics, was not to be a comics writer anymore. It was just to be an artist because, you know, especially Western comics, you didn't see a lot of people doing both. Like you saw, you know, Marvel comics with, you know, writers and a penciler and an inker and a colorist. Like there was just a big team of people. And I really liked drawing and painting. So I really thought that's what I wanted to do. Um, so after college, I ended up getting into the Disney uh, talent development program, which is almost like an internship, but it's for recent graduates. And um, it just so happened that after I finished my training time, they had an opening. So I got to stay on at Disney for about eight years. Um, and that's about when I decided that I wanted to actually revisit writing. And I uh, decided that I wanted to try writing my own stories. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I have a question about, um, mm -hmm. since you are a fellow weeb, you were into anime <laughs> <Yeah>. and manga. <laughs> um, I also studied art when I was, um, when I was younger and my art teachers would, uh, kind of try to push me away from manga and that style of art. But mm -hmm. nowadays it seems like it's being embraced more. I don't know if it's because it's this generation of, um, Asian artists who were really mm -hmm. inspired by manga art and now like they're incorporating it with their style. So um, I just want to ask like uh, questions about, I guess, embracing um, like an Asian art style and how mm -hmm. Asian bodies are being drawn in animation and also in comics. Um, yeah. So I grew up, especially during my art, school training and stuff, we had a lot of the same bias. You know, like I think that a lot of teachers were like, oh, if you draw anime, anime is just porn. And like, <laughs> even when we were working on, um, I was working and we were working on Big Hero 6, which is very anime inspired. A lot of the the crew, like people like me who were working on the film, were like, oh, we love anime. Like, oh my God, like we could like reference all these things, look at these like cool fight scenes. And like the older leadership were just, like it completely went over their heads. Like they just did not get it. Um, but I think the things are changing. And I, I think a lot of that is because, you know, I'm 36. So like the, the generation of us who grew up with anime, like we are now becoming the people who are more senior in those positions. So um, we can just tell people to be like, yeah, no, go for it. Like draw anime <laughs> because there's so much that those skills just like really cross over nowadays. And we don't have that same prejudice that, um, you know, oh, like all anime is just pornography, <laughs> which is so funny because I like recently learned where that came from. And it really is just because that was the only stuff that was being imported in like the 80s, 70s and 80s. So like older people, that's all they really saw of it. They didn't see like the huge range that exists in anime. Yeah, they were watching like Satoshi Khan, like Perfect Blue, yeah. and all just boobs and stuff. Hey, <laughs> hey, Perfect Blue is a great movie. I don't know what you I you're... wish they were watching Perfect Blue. No, they were watching like... Satoshi Khan is an auteur, yeah. okay? <laughs> yeah, no, they were they were watching like terrible imported, like literal, just like, I don't know, hentai porn that they... Yeah. I don't know. I don't even know where they were, had access to it, but that's that's definitely like tentacle porn and all that stuff. That's what that's oh. I think that's what they're I guess thinking. That's just telling on themselves. That's yeah. Like, yeah. It's a little like, oh, okay, interesting. I don't know how you got there, but sure. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely, I feel like 
um, I'm 39, so we're about mm-hmm. the same generation. And then, you know, growing up, it's it was wild because in college, I was like when Adult Swim was playing Inuyasha, mm-hmm. yeah. um, Cowboy Bebop, mm-hmm. Big O, and you saw a lot of people, non-Asians, getting into these stories mm-hmm. and kind of seeing the potential for animation for, like, n- not kids. Right, right, yeah. And so I think that that also has a lot to do with how the art style or just animation for adults is now, like, a thing, right? Like, Netflix yeah. has, like, their, mm-hmm. their cyberpunk series. There's, there's so much more, I guess, opportunity for animators to not just make kids stuff. Even the kids stuff is still pretty good. Yeah, I mean, I think that anime, that just shows that animation is not you know, not a genre, it's a medium and there's stuff for preschoolers in anime and there's stuff that's like for like adult adults. And I think that on the, in the West, like we're slowly starting to get more of that. Um, there's still, it's still a struggle. Cause I think, you know, capitalistic systems still <laughs> are very uh, entrenched in the idea that like animation is for kids. But I think that there's a lot of cool stuff that's happening now that is pushing back against that idea. Yeah. So I always feel bad for asking like this most basic of like Asian American Mm -hmm. questions. But as someone who grew up focused on getting good at art, how how did your parents take that? You know, my parents were um, pretty supportive the whole time. Like they got me an art tutor when I was around like in the seventh grade. Um, and I attended art center at night classes or, um, Saturday classes for high schoolers all through my high school. So like from grade nine until grade 12, they definitely thought that I should, you know, keep it as a hobby, you know, um, and, you know, applying to art school was not their favorite thing. Um, and you know, I think that my dad, basically the entire time I was in art school, he was like, Every time we had dinner, he was just like, do you regret going to art school? (laughs) And I'm like, no. (laughs) So, I mean, I think that they materially supported me pretty much my entire career. Um, My dad was an engineer, but he was also someone who was very creative and did not really fit into like strict categories. He had a really hard time with um, like Taiwanese schools and how they work. So I think that he was much more open to the idea that um, like we could just find our own path. I do think that he was always kind of like, I I don't know if you're going to, if you're going to regret this someday, but you know, they, they paid for my tuition and they, uh, they let me go. Like we didn't have a big fight about it. So, you know, I think that their disapproval was more subtle (laughs) And, you know, mostly I, I appreciate them for the support that they did give me. That's that's great. I mean, I feel like I still remember when I was in college and tried to switch to a media major mm-hmm. and got in a huge fight with my dad, which he does not remember. But I remember. <laughs> They're real good at not remembering <laughs> that stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Asian parents tend to uh, have selective memory when it comes to <laughs> fights. Yeah, uh, but how... Is your work process different when you're working on a graphic novel versus um, an animated film? Like, I'm guessing the storyboarding process is similar, Mm -hmm. but at least like for graphic novels, you're writing the story. Whereas like when you're working on a film, it's a collaborative process. So if you could just tell us your work process. Yeah, so that's definitely the biggest part, right? So like when you're working on a film, especially at a big studio like Disney, every film has at least like, 200 people working on it. So 
when I was working there and my job as visual development artist, I was working on like one very narrow slice of the pie. Um, I never did any storyboarding. I never did any animating. I didn't do any color. And, you know, I would just like do exactly the like one slice of the whole project that was my purview. Uh, and even then, you know, split up between me and like, I don't know, six other people. So the things that we would get to do was were much smaller. But on the other hand, it was nice to be able to focus on storytelling in such a small um, subject. So like, for example, when I worked on Tangled, I did a lot of work on Rapunzel's bedroom. And I got to think about like, oh, okay, what kind of character is she? What does, what kind of stuff does she have? What does, what does each object mean to her? And, you know, that's storytelling, but it's on like a much more focused, much more um, almost like tunnel vision part of the process. Whereas like when I'm doing graphic novels, I'm doing every single part of it. I'm doing the writing, I'm doing all of the, the the thumbnails and the paneling, and then I'm doing all of the like tight line drawing and the design work that goes in behind it. Um, I do get help with color. So like, I'm not the only person working on the books. Usually I get someone to like help me out with um, final color, but otherwise like it's all on me. So the biggest difference is when I was working on projects, I would never be too concerned about what the story was because it wasn't my job to worry about that. And if it came out and it wasn't good, I could always just be like, well, I didn't write it. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it was like, oh, I just made it look nice and it looks nice. Right. Um, whereas like with my own books, it's like, nope, I am a hundred percent responsible for what this looks like, what this, what the story is. Uh, there's no hiding, you know? And I think that that's really scary, but on the other hand, it's really rewarding too. Um, I do miss working with a crew because Every member of that team that puts together a film, they all bring something unique to the table and the things that they bring always make the film better. So I, I am missing that because I know that I'm not the best at every single part of the process. You know, like I'm good at storytelling and I'm good at like certain aspects of the drawing process, but there are parts that I'm weaker in. And there are times when I just wish that I could like have the help of someone else who could like fill in those gaps. Um, so yeah, like that's probably the biggest difference. Um, how labor intensive is it to like finish a single page of yeah. a graphic novel? <laughs> That's the thing about graphic novels is that they are so labor intensive. When you look at um, like Big Two, which is DC and Marvel, and you look at their titles, they have like a ton of names on it, right? And the reason is because they want to break up that labor. They want to be like, okay, you do the thumbnails and pencils, you do the inks, you do the color. And then that way it's not just one person doing everything. Like you have more hands, which just makes the whole process a lot easier. Um, I've done a lot of work for big two now and some of them even on like, you know, monthly projects, which, yeah, I understand why they have to have a little bit more of a systemized process. Um, when it comes to traditional publishing, which is like what hungry ghost is, I can kind of dictate the schedule myself. Like when we sign a contract, I could be like, I think it's going to take me nine months or whatever. It's going to take me 18 months, however long I think it's going to take me because I'm the only one who's doing it. I have to do every single part. Um, so every page, they vary a lot because some are really simple and some are really complicated. I would say that each page probably takes about six hours start to finish. Um, but, and the way that I do the process too, is like, I do the whole book as like little tiny sketches. So like, they're really messy, but, and they're really just for me, like for me and my editor. And I do the whole book and that takes about eight weeks. And then I move on to the next step, which is like 
tying down the lines and getting it to like look more readable. <laughs> and then that process can take um, anywhere from like six to nine months. So it just depends on the the book or, or the page. So it's it's harder for me to be like, a page takes this much time. Cause like a page for a thumbnail takes me like maybe like half an hour. And then a page for like inks takes me like three to five hours. Well, you heard it here, folks. Uh, graphic novels are a lot of work. <laughs> um, I mean, like I read Hungry Ghost twice, and it took oh, me nice. less. It took me less than three hours, and I'm like, oh my god, it must have taken her so long to write this book, and I consumed it so quickly. Uh, you know, I, I feel like this is a thing that a lot of readers are apologetic about. Like, like, oh my god, I read your book so fast, and I know it took you so much so long to make it and you know coming from film and television i always think about how long it takes us to make a movie you know like that took years too tangled was in development for 10 years and people sit down and watch it in 90 minutes you know <laughs> like it's the same thing but like i think that for some reason because it's so much more personal because like again it's only like two or three hands touching this project versus like hundreds it feels like oh that exchange isn't equal but i actually think that like I'm getting a deal, you know, like it only took me a year and it only was like this much time. So um, I actually appreciate that people can read graphic novels quickly. I love short books too. Like I wish we had like more novella length books, like these giant epic, you know, fantasy novels, those, you know, Brandon Sanderson things. I'm like, man, I just, it's so much, <laughs> get me shorter books. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, we need yeah, more light sure. novels in yes. our libraries. Yes. <laughs> that would be amazing. Just like tell me a story that I can read in like two hours. That would be incredible. <laughs> yeah. I mean, speaking of length, how like when you create your graphic novels, um, when you write it out, is it like do you write like a script or is it like a story? Like is it a novel? Um, so funny enough, my first series was actually called City of Secrets. And that series is a middle grade fantasy steampunk adventure. So very different than Hungry Ghost. Um, but that was my very first writing project. And I actually wrote it prose first. I wrote an entire novel of that book. Um, I wanted it to be prose because actually, like, that's one of my ambitions. I really want to write prose. But, you know, I think that, like, since it was my first novel and a lot of my friends who read it, they were like, huh, how come, like, you have, like, no description in this book? <laughs> and it's because, like, as an artist in my head, I can already see it. Like, I don't need to to tell you right like you get it but um that's why people were like well, why don't you do it as a graphic novel and at first i was like oh my god no because it's so much work and you know my first book was about a moving city and i was like god no i don't want to draw that <laughs> like i knew exactly like what my limitations were but then i was like you know what i'll try and then i did and it ended up filling in that gap in my, you know, my lack of description because, yeah, I no longer had to describe the city. I could just draw it for you and then people could see it. Um, so, yeah, for that book, weirdly, this is not my process, but that book, I did write it as a novel first. And then I adapted it by writing it basically as a screenplay. I used like a pretty typical screenplay format to adapt it. Um, for Hungry Ghost, I used a similar process where I used a screenplay style format to write out the whole story. And I do that still for all of my books. That's not very common. A lot of graphic novelists do not write scripts for their books. They just write as they draw. Um, but for me, I like to be able to have a further zoomed out view 
And I feel like if I'm drawing, then it's like too tied down already. So I want to have it in a script so I can like move stuff around and change things and delete scenes. You know, it makes it feel much more manageable when I have it be so small or yeah, like basically without drawing. So yeah, I usually do a screenplay style script first and then I take it and then do the rest of the process. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think your your way is like should be standard <laughs> i mean it's helpful for my editors too because they're they're like great i can actually read it i can actually see the whole book <laughs> and i do think it really helped when i was selling the book um because graphic novels are sold on proposal they're not sold as a finished piece like usually with a prose novel you have to submit a finished manuscript whereas like graphic novels you just have to send a proposal and the proposal's just like here's an outline and here's some pages you know um, but every time when I went out with a proposal, my proposal included a full script. So including a full script, I think helped editors see they're like, okay, I know where you're going with this. Like, I know exactly where you're going with this, not kind of like a vague summary, but like, okay, I see, I see like the dialogue. I know exactly what you're going to do. So yeah, they don't have to decipher from like little yeah. thumbnails and be like, what is this person saying in this dialogue bubble? Yeah, they're like, <laughs> it, it's a lot of faith, you know, because it is such a long project. And then you like hire someone on and then, I don't know, a year and a half later, that's when you actually see it. Like that's that's a lot of commitment for a publisher. Yeah. So we're here to talk about your newest graphic novel, Hungry Ghost, which um, by the time our listeners listening to this podcast would have just come out. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what Hungry Ghost is about? Yeah. So Hungry Ghost is my YA debut. And it is about a girl, Valerie Chu, who is growing up Asian American and dealing with body image and an eating disorder. Um, specifically, I wanted to address the cultural side of having ED. Yeah. And Hungry Ghost, the title... Obviously, it ties into like Asian culture. We have like the Hungry Ghost Festival. Was that the reason mm-hmm. why you picked that title? Yeah, it was. Um, it's funny because when I Googled Hungry Ghost, like there are so many different Asian folklore stories about Hungry Ghosts. But in my own upbringing, the way I heard it the most was actually when you ate too fast. And then your parents would be like, oh, you're eating like a hungry ghost. And oh. um yeah, like I, I didn't hear any of like the folklore. <laughs> I didn't know any of it until like very recently. But um, yeah, I always like heard it as like almost like a way that they would tease you or make fun of you for like eating too much. Um, and yeah, so I, I use that for that reason because I think that the character, she is both physically, literally hungry, but also like emotionally hungry. Yeah. And like Rira said, I also like devoured this book. I read it like so fast, like in one night. And, you know, the way that you captured the, I guess, what's the right word? Like the paradox, the dilemma, or the the contradiction mm-hmm. of when people you love say, oh, you're eating too much, you're getting too fat, but mm-hmm. also want you to eat all the time and how that kind of messes with us, right? <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's like you want to make people happy by eating because they want you to eat. But at the same time, it's like, I don't know, I think they just magically want you to be skinny. <laughs> like It's not really how it works. But um, yeah, that is definitely a, a very specific cultural thing that happens in a lot of Asian families. Yeah, there's a scene in your book where Val and her family are celebrating Lunar New Year. And in like Taiwanese fashion, they're seated at this large round table just covered with food 
And, you know, like Val's kind of caught in a dilemma because it's rude not to eat what her elders put on her plate. But also like in the side, her mom is just kind of like side eyeing mm-hmm. her and be like, it's like, I see yeah. what you're what you're eating. And um, I just thought that was just a specific <clears throat> Asian American thing. And I just want to ask, like, was that a struggle that you personally experienced growing up? I mean, I think that for me a little bit, you know, I think that um, when I would visit my grandparents, they would always like give us so much food. I remember going to Taiwan, it felt like you were just like nonstop eating, (laughs) like just one meal to the next to like the snack in the middle or whatever, because people, especially in Taiwan, the food is so good. And everyone's like, you have to try this. You have to try this. Um, But like most of my family, when I was growing up, did not live here. Um, We, my, my extended families was still mostly in Taiwan. So um, that wasn't something that happened like frequently, but it was something I wanted to depict. Yeah, um, my family's the same. We're we're all over the place, and it would always be for me. It would always be like I had one fun uncle who would always override my mom whenever <laughs> she told me I couldn't eat something. Yeah, and so I would take advantage of that and eat whatever mm. I wanted, knowing that I would get in trouble when I got home. <laughs> I mean, it is funny because like I have a brother, and it's very easy to see the gender differences. Because like, oh yeah, yeah. Once like there was food you know they would be like oh the boys get the boys more food get make them eat you know have them have it and like it, it just felt very clear that like the girls were not supposed to have the food like they they, they were supposed to be fed but like the boys had like the, get, got the most food and they got all the best parts and they yeah so that's definitely a thing too um so you briefly mentioned your previous graphic novel city mm-hmm. of secrets and also the sequel city of illusion uh they're fantasy stories, like you mentioned. So what was it like switching gears and diving into a contemporary story, which, you know, is rooted in very serious topics like disordered eating and fat shaming? Yeah, it was um, I when I decided I wanted to write, I found fantasy novels and um, I fell out of love with reading during college because I think a lot of us do, you know, like you, you get busy and you, you don't read for pleasure anymore. And so when I returned to actually reading for pleasure, I read fantasy and that was like the thing that I loved the most. So that's really where City of Secrets came from was a love of those types of books. Um, Hungry Ghost, like that really came about because I just had a conversation with someone who just really like from my culture who did not understand what it was like at all to have an eating disorder. Like um, the conversation in the book with the mother at the end was pretty much like verbatim a conversation that I had with mine. And I was so upset (laughs) because I was like, I don't know how to explain this to you. I don't know how to show you what it's like. And so that really spurred me to write this book because I was like, oh, what if I told you a story? What if, what if I wrote it? What if I like actually showed you what it was like? Um, and in the end, I like realized that like, this is not, that's not the mission of this book. This it's not for me to explain to people who like, will never get it. It's much more to help other people, like, especially like young Asian girls who maybe don't see themselves depicted a lot, especially in like, ED stories um, to like see themselves. Yeah. In your afterward, you wrote Val is not me, but I was her. And it really made me think, okay, this book, even though I'm not someone who struggled with uh, disordered eating, like it's probably going to mean so much to Asian American girls out there who did have that struggle. 
what was it like revisiting your personal history of disordered eating? And when do you think you stopped becoming Val? You know, it's really um, like a lot of the things in the book are true. Like they are just things that did happen. But when they happened, the timeline in which they happened did not fit into a narrative structure. So that's why I wrote it as a fictionalized memoir instead of a memoir, because I wanted to say something that I felt like I could do better in fiction than I could in a memoir. Um, And I think that like, yeah, it's so funny because I stopped with the, the really eaty behavior of purging when I was like in my, I want to say early thirties, mid mid twenties. It's tough because eating is not something that you just, you're cured, you know, like it's almost like alcoholism where it's like, this is just something that you're always going to kind of have to deal with. And there is going to be good days and bad days. So in a lot of ways, like I still am her, like I still think a lot of those same things, but I've also like built up the other side of me um, that can like push back against those messages. So yeah, I think in the afterward, I say, yeah, I'm not Val, but I have been in her shoes. And the character of Jordan was actually like a fictional character. Like there is no person like that. Um, but I wrote her to be like the, the version of me that I want to be, which is like someone who's just comfortable, who's like, okay with it. And I, and I think that like, I didn't really get like really committed to recovery until actually probably the beginning of the pandemic, because even though I had stopped all of whatever is considered actual diagnosable eating disorder behavior, I was still very, very married to diet culture and like being thin at all costs. I was still, I was doing like keto. I think I was on keto for like a year and I was seeing a, uh, you know, a personal trainer like three times a week pretty much up until like the beginning of the pandemic when I just had a reckoning that I was like, I, I don't want to do this anymore. Like this sucks. <laughs> like, yeah. Like I, I did all that work for what really? And yeah, I think that like, even if you are recovered from your eating disorder, which how they measure that is very, you know, like I had a therapist and we were talking about it and they'd be like, when's the last time you purged? And I was like, I don't know, like four months ago, they're like, great. So like you're on the path. Right. But like, I don't think you could really ever be healed from that until you start to learn to accept your body and also learn how to eat normally. <laughs> um, so I don't think that I really was able to come out of disordered eating, maybe not ED, like eating disorder, capital E, capital D. I don't think I was able to leave disordered eating until I learned about intuitive eating, which is, I think, the only way to really recover. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, eating disorders, we have such like a lack of data when it comes to Asian Americans, because I feel like eating disorders is kind of associated with like uh, white women, like thin white women. Mm-hmm. And uh, and there's also like a cultural aspect to eating disorders in the Asian American community, because so much of uh like body commentary is just rooted mm-hmm. in our culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. Like one of the earliest lines in Hungry Ghost is, I always wanted to be guai. Uh, there's no English translation, but it means good or obedient. And I feel like this pressure to be good is very common among Asian women. And it 
definitely mm-hmm. plays a strong role when it comes to like eating disorders and being insecure about your body. Uh, why do you think that pressure is so prevalent across, you know, our culture? Man, I mean, I wish I knew. I think we all want approval from our parents. And I think for me, like, I didn't really get a rebellious stage until I was in my like late 20s, early 30s, you know, um, like growing up, I was like the good kid because, yeah, I feel like for our families, like there wasn't a lot of um, like the way that they show love was really conditional based on like how good you were. And I had a little brother and he was always the bad one. So I had like more incentive and more pressure to be good. And good meant a lot of things, but it also meant like physically looking a certain way. Um, And uh, what part of the reason why this book is not my experience is that I actually did not have an eating disorder when I was in high school. I was naturally thin, like all the way up until I graduated. And my eating disorder didn't start until I was in college and into my 20s. And a big reason why it did start was because I suddenly gained weight, like I gained the freshman 15, you know? And then I freaked out because I was like, oh, my God, this is the thing that my parents have been like telling me that they value so much. They're like, oh, it's so great. You're like so thin. You're so naturally thin, blah, blah, blah. And then like the moment that I could feel that getting taken away from me because bodies change, you know, like that's just normal. And the moment I felt that start to like disappear, it felt like I was like, oh, my God, like if I'm not if I don't look like that anymore, then they're not going to love me. Yeah, I feel like there's also um, not to not. I always talk about the patriarchy in our show, Mm. but, you know, like I feel like I really do feel like there is like a gender bias when it comes to uh, bodies. I feel like with Asian women, you know, it's not just that you need to have a small body, but you need to have a small presence. Like you have to Mm -hmm. be docile and you have to, you know, you know, be in control. And there's just like so many. so many expectations mm-hmm. put on Asian daughters. And I feel like uh, with disordered eating, it's almost like a silent protest. It's like, this is the mm-hmm. one thing yeah. I can, you know, control against my fa- <laughs> against my family who's telling me to do all of these things and they have all these expectations. Yeah, I also feel like, especially for me, I- I'm not going to generalize say this for anyone else, but I know that for me, when I started feeling that pressure from my family, the bulimia definitely ramped up. And part of the reason was because it was a little bit of a self-harm tactic, you know, like it it is very physical. It wasn't just like anorexia where you don't eat. It's like, you're actually like doing something to yourself. And I feel like in my head, I was like, oh, you want me to be thin? I'll show you. I'll show you what it takes to be thin. Of course, I was the only one who knew that. So (laughs) it wasn't a very effective protest. But, um, you know, I definitely think that that was a little bit of it too, which was my own anger just like manifesting itself in a way that was harmful to me and only to me. <laughs> yeah. And it it's hard because like, uh, like we mentioned, food is a love language with a lot of Asian American families. And um, I don't know how it is in like Taiwanese or Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. I'm Korean, but you know, it's so it's so casual the way they mm-hmm. mention your body is like the first thing that it's not high. It's always mm-hmm. have you eaten? 
Right, and yeah. they always mention like, oh, you've gained weight. Your face is so small. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you have, um, what is it? You you have like ridiculous beauty standards and therefore you're trying to like match that. And mm-hmm. I feel and it's just like very strange that other people, your family has like this hyper fixation on your body. And it's like, why do you care so much? So do you think there's like a saving face aspect to it? Oh, absolutely. I think that um, mothers, especially like they carry the weight of being responsible for their children and what their children look like. So I think that especially for like Asian mothers and Asian daughters, like they definitely feel like, oh, if you if your body is deviant in some way, that is like a reflection on me and my parenting. So. Like, I feel like it's so, so much pressure on them to like make you conform. And then like, and I'm sure that they grew up with that too. Like that must be something that was a learned behavior. So yeah, I definitely think that that's part of it. Yeah. And also, um, I feel like you need to also mention like economic growth because a lot Mm -hmm. of like our parents and grandparents generation, of course, they didn't grow up with. Uh, the food that we're eating now, like mm-hmm. a lot of them are from war torn countries. And as they've as those countries have developed, obviously, there's more resources, more food. So I feel like the mindset of like, OK, you need to eat all the food there is because mm-hmm. like it'll go to waste. Um, and therefore, like. They don't understand, like you can't eat all these mm-hmm. things and also stay skinny. There's. Um, right. Yeah, so I think there's a bit of a disconnect there. Uh, but yeah. you mentioned how like yeah. mothers feel like raising their children is it's a re- it's reflective of them. Mm-hmm. And I thought Val's mother was uh, so layered um, because even though her even though she has very toxic criticism, it does come from a place of love. So how did you go about humanizing? Val's uh, mother's character and was that difficult Mm. for you it's so funny because there are a lot of people who because this book um when I was pitching it and I was selling it we went to auction which means that a bunch of different publishing houses pitched on it or offered on it and um I had a lot of calls with editors like different people who'd read the book and they were like oh we love it you know whatever here's how we would change it or whatever and a lot of people who I did not end up going with they had, they said that the mother was like too unsympathetic and she um, like, they were like, Oh, she should like get her comeuppance at the end or something. And I'm like, yeah, that's not realistic to my experience. And like, I also don't think that I made her that villainous. So I think that there is a perspective that like other people of color have when they come to it and they can actually see that they can actually see that she's layered and not just like this very flat villain. And I think that like, a lot of people who grew up with more Western storytelling ideals, you know, like w- when they see like what a mother is and what a mother is supposed to do, they see her as much more villainous and like uh, they see her as much more unsympathetic. So I, I don't think that I like necessarily tried to make her layered. This is just like my own feelings about the people that I grew up with, you know, like this, this is the reality of them where they're like complicated. And yeah, they do some things that are like really, really bad. But at the same time, they, I I try to come at it with sympathy as much as I can, but also like not to shy away from exactly like 
how crappy some of that behavior is. So I think that that's, that's what did it. But again, like I said, a lot of people may not read it that way. Cause yeah, again, that's I had interesting. a lot of editors who were like, Oh, she's so mean. And I'm like, uh-huh. Yeah. I, I mean, you can be emotionally <laughs> manipulative, but also yeah. be loving in, in your own yeah. way. And I think we're also like in a post everything everywhere world. So <laughs> I think that we we as a you know culture, maybe we can have those conversations about like what motherhood looks like and like yeah, like not flatten mothers, not make them feel so one note and so all giving and all, you know, like like this like very angelic figure of a mother that is so prominent in Western culture um, that we can actually that kind of, you know, yeah. get into it and make mothers well, who they are, people, you know? Yeah. I mean, I definitely related to like, you know, as adults, now we can kind of sympathize with parents who were probably dealing with a lot and Valerie's mother is definitely dealing with a lot throughout the story and something that I definitely noticed that maybe some of your editors might have missed is that Val's mother kind of deflects conflict through criticism right like she avoids addressing the issues by like making comments and which is something that like my mom definitely does and to me, that felt like so such a on point depiction mm-hmm. of what that feels like to be. Yeah, I think it's also really hard because like as Asian-Americans, mm-hmm. we grew up in a very different culture than like our parents. Usually anyways, like my parents are first generation mm-hmm. immigrants. So like they have to deal with our Americanness, which is our desire to like be more mm-hmm. open emotionally to be like, I'm having this problem. Please help me deal with it. And they just do not have that capability like they just never encountered it never expected to have to do that and i think that conflict is is really challenging but it's really like a big part of the experience of being a child of immigrants yeah and you know a big part of coming to terms with that is understanding that's just how our parents are and there's no resolution there's no cathartic like yeah confrontation that's definitely like the the other thing that i had a lot of commentary on from editors some of them were like oh, you know, like, we want this the mother to, like, see that she's done wrong and, like, apologize or whatever. And I'm like, absolutely not. That's, like, <laughs> not going to happen. And I, I think that that is the fantasy that a lot of um, the current, you know, generational trauma movies have done where they've, you know, <laughs> I saw a joke someone on Twitter was, like, the <laughs> ultimate fantasy where your immigrant mom actually apologizes to you for something. <laughs> And yeah, I'm like, that's not realistic. It's not the way that I think that this is going to end. And yeah, so like my resolution to me is satisfying as an author, but I I think that for a lot of people, it will not feel satisfying enough. Well, like one of my favorite scenes in the book is like after Val and her mother, like they kind of have like a blowout, um, Mm -hmm. like Val goes to the bathroom and she's crying and then a stranger comforts her and i thought that was just such like a poignant scene uh what compelled you to include it in your book so i said earlier that like that confrontation scene that like almost verbatim did happen um and it took place like in a hotel restaurant (laughs) and that did happen like um not in that exact way it's like what happened because real life is like way more annoying and funny um after the brunch i 
went to Michael's because I needed something from the art store. And then this lady who's standing behind me, she was like, hey, were you just at this restaurant? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, oh, I overheard you and your mom. And then she she comforted me. She was like, I'm really sorry. And can I give you a hug? And yeah, it's like that just actually happened. And it was just so weird, but also like... I don't know. I included it because like, not necessarily because as a storytelling moment, I was like, this has to happen. It was more like this actually happened and I don't know what to do with it. So I'm just going to like put it in the story. <laughs> like this is part of it because yeah, that that's one of those weird things that happen in real life that like, you just can't ignore someone. Like I told the story to someone else afterwards and they were like, Oh, that was like the universe giving you a gift. Like after that terrible conversation, the universe was like, hey, it's okay. So, yeah. I think it really helps to have like older women definitely like have solidarity and be like, yeah, yeah. what you're going through, it's not just like something you can sweep under the rug. It's actually mm -hmm. real and you shouldn't, right. you know, have to feel ashamed or that you have to hide it for other people's benefits. Mm -hmm. And I that's why it was like really powerful to me. So I was like... Yeah, this is like, this is the second best thing you can get. <laughs> like the first best thing is yeah. uh, an apology from your mother. And that's never going to mm -hmm. happen. <laughs> I mean, I think that the way other people show up for us, that is so much about what this story is. Because I think that I expected so much from my parents to be like, you have to be the way that I see parents on TV, right? You need to like be all of my emotional, you know, my, you need to be able to like take care of me both physically and emotionally. Um, and that's just not realistic. And even if like some families have a much more healthy relationship with each other, um, we have to be able to look outside and like find support where we can get it. It might not be where we thought it was going to be or where we hoped we were going to get it. But like, yeah, if the universe presents you with a gift, just like take it. Yeah, I, I mean, like, as someone who doesn't have eating disorder, like, I definitely grew up with a lot of, like, very strict, um, I, I guess, like, restrictive diets were a thing that were, like, definitely pressured on me. And mm -hmm. I feel like it was also just the idea of, like, well, your value is your physical appearance as a girl. Yeah. Like, if you if you are fat, then you can't get a husband. And if you can't get a husband, you have no future. And it's, like, mm -hmm. tied to all of these things. And it's, like... Oh, yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, it comes from concern because your family mm -hmm. wants the best thing for you. And it just happens that the best thing... Uh, for you is not exact it, it doesn't exactly match what your parents mm -hmm. want for you so I thought that was beautifully depicted in your book oh thank you yeah and the way that you draw all the characters like their faces are very expressive and even when you know in that scene with the confrontation you can see that like the mom probably knows she's like messing up mm -hmm. right now but just can't help it because it's just who she is how she's been told to yeah i think she has yeah. no other recourse she doesn't she doesn't know what else to do except deflect you know it's like <laughs> oh i have this problem no you don't what no that's not a thing like let's talk about something else you know it, it and i think that they are uncomfortable um and the mom is very uncomfortable in that moment and instead of like trying to address the thing that has just been presented to her she's like 
oh, oh no, like she's so scared of her own emotions that she's just like, okay, we're just going to like go around it. And then we're going to forget that we even had this conversation. <laughs> yeah. And it's also like a form of control and normalcy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, oh, yeah. if I can control my diet and control my children's mm-hmm. diet, it's just one thing that is stable and in my control in this mm-hmm. chaotic Uh, in this chaotic world where things are going wrong all the time. Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy because I I do see that, especially in our older generation parents, and I don't know, a lot of people now, like restrictive eating is just so normalized. This is just like the way to be healthy is to like cut out all carbs or whatever. Yeah, human beings are not meant to live that way. I don't know what (laughs) what they're thinking. Yeah, it's like, like, yeah, no, we should live like cavemen. And it's like, what? No, do you know how long life expectancy was back then? <laughs> like, <laughs> we have food for a reason. So, yeah, I, I, I do sympathize a lot because, like, when you're in that mindset and you, you, you don't know any other way to be, like, you're like, oh, well, this is, like, what's healthy. And, you know, when you're confronted with, like, well, it's not healthy for me, then they don't really have a script. So they just kind of, like, keep going back to it. So it could be a very frustrating and like it feels very gaslighty. <laughs> like your your um the people from your culture are like, no, no, that's not an eating disorder. Like that's just normal. And you're like, that's no, just, yeah, I know that's just self-discipline. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, uh growing up, like I was like I was severely underweight, and that was just like my body at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh people would compliment me being like, Oh, you're so thin. And it's like, I wish my body was like yours. And I'm like, No, you don't. Like, I literally <laughs> went to the doctor and the doctor said I was 20 pounds underweight and I have to eat a lot of food mm-hmm. to gain weight, but I wasn't just I wasn't gaining weight at that time. And once I did, once I hit puberty and like I was able to be an average weight for once, like other people were like, oh, like you don't look as good as you used to. And like, um, like I remember there was an incident where I was at church and like, like cafeteria style, like the person who was serving food, they purposely gave me a lot less food than all of my friends. They're like, that's so fucked up. Yeah, they they literally was just like they gave me like two pieces of like of like meat or whatever, and, mm-hmm. and they're just like, oh, you need to like cut back so you can go back to you know being thin. And wow. I was just so I was just so angry because I'm like, you don't know, like like this is my body. How dare you tell me that? Like, this is what I have to do, especially when I worked so hard to be average weight. So, yeah, it's it's, it's none of their business. Yeah, it's none of their business. But of course, like, you know, Asian community, it's like body commentary is just like a casual conversation. You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, how's the weather today? Like, it's Mm -hmm. it's that casual. So, yeah. Well, that was a therapy session. <laughs> Sorry to our listeners. I, I have like very uh, strong opinions on how our community uh, comments on our bodies and how. Uh, yeah. I mean, like even like you said, the compliments, yeah. like when they compliment you for being thin, then you, in your head, you know that you're like, well, if I ever change, then like I'm going to lose that whatever currency that is, like whatever favor that I have. So it, it only just like puts you more aware of your body. It, it never is actually a good thing. And like you can compliment thinness, but like what if someone is going through like chemo, you know, like that may not be a good thing to them. And I think commenting on people's 
bodies in general. We should just not do it. But um, it's worse in our in Asian culture, but it's definitely still a thing even in like American culture. All right. So as we come to the end of our discussion, um, I'd like to ask, like, what do you what do you hope that your readers can get from reading your story? I hope that readers will see an experience of eating disorders that is more than just the gory details. Um, I've read a lot of eating disorder memoirs and books of the like, and I really wanted to explore what it actually feels like emotionally when you're, when you have so much pressure to change your body or to keep your body a certain size. So I, I really want people to read the book and to have a little bit more sympathy and empathy for young people who are going through something like this. So the book comes out April 25th, mm-hmm. um, which by the time you're hearing this, it should be out on booksellers everywhere. So definitely check it out. Um, what are you working on next? Um, so I am working on a follow-up to Hungry Ghost, which is currently untitled, but it is similar in that it is a YA contemporary book that um, relies a lot on my own experiences. And it's about growing up on the internet and um Oof. yeah and uh yeah getting into a inappropriate relationship with a much older man oh no <laughs> yeah not great <laughs> not great well thank you so much victoria for chatting with us good luck on all your future endeavors thank and you. hope to hear from you again soon yeah thank you guys thanks for having me And that was Victoria Ying. Um, her graphic novel, Hungry Ghost, is now available at booksellers everywhere, including at Books and Boba Bookshop. So if our conversation piqued your interest, um, feel free to purchase off of Bookshop and support your local bookstores at Books and Boba as well. Uh, another way to support Books and Boba, of course, is also our new Patreon. Um, Books and Boba Patreon members will enjoy access to our brand new Books and Boba Discord, as well as special access to our new Boba Chat series, our monthly chat show, uh, where Rira and I talk about non-book-related news um, and, and things. Yeah, so if you are a new Patreon patron, uh, welcome to our Discord. I would love to talk about other books uh, with you guys. Also talk about like my other nerdums like video <laughs> games and uh and like k-pop so please yeah. join in on the conversations don't be shy yeah all right so before we go um Mira, what are we reading for the month of may yeah so for the month of may we are reading the fortunes of jaded women by carolyn Wynn. Yeah, it is a multi-generational um, story about a Vietnamese-American family living in O.C.'s little Saigon who has to deal with a family curse that prevents them from finding love and happiness. Um, so looking forward to discussing this book with you, Rira, at the end of the month. And for our listeners, if you've already read the book and have thoughts to share, uh, please let us know on Goodreads or on Discord. Um, we'd love to hear from you. But with that, thanks again to Victoria Ying for chatting with us on Books and Boba. And we'll see you all next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to Books and Boba. This podcast was hosted by Marvin Yue and Rira Yu and edited and produced by Marvin Yue. Follow the book club on Twitter and Instagram by going to at Books and Boba and engage with us on Goodreads on our Goodreads group. You can also check out past episodes of the podcast by going to booksandboba.com and by subscribing to us on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget, you can support Books and Boba and Asian American authors by purchasing books at our bookshop.org account. Check out the link in our show notes and also at booksandboba.com. 
Books and Boba is a proud member of the Potluck Podcast Collective, a collective of Asian American hosted podcasts featuring unique voices and stories from the Asian diaspora. Learn more about the collective and check out our fellow Potluck shows by visiting the website podcastpotluck.com. Thanks for listening. Life gets a little crazy sometimes. Sometimes it's confusing, sometimes it's funny, sometimes it's beautiful, and sometimes it can just piss us off. Enter First of All Podcast. It's a safe space for real conversations about the things that we all struggle with, celebrate, contemplate, and work through in our daily lives. I'm your host, Mindy Chang. I'm an actor, filmmaker, and entrepreneur with a colorful background, a full life, and brilliant friends who I love to unpack life with to share with all of you. They are everyday people like you and me, ranging from award-winning artists, cultural icons, powerful CEOs, my hilarious childhood friends, and even my mom. Tune in for honest conversations on mental health, dating, sex, family, career, culture, and everything in between. Listen to First of All wherever you find podcasts. Part of the Potluck Podcast Collective.